John chapter 17. I hope you have your Bibles today. We have a very important portion of Scripture to read. Of course, all of the Bible is important, but one of the very best chapters in all the Bible, I think, is John chapter 17. Today we're looking at what I like to call, and which many theologians have called, the real Lord's Prayer. And this is part number two of the message that I began last week. And what we have in John chapter 17 actually is a prayer that only Jesus could have prayed. If you ask just about anyone to tell you the Lord's Prayer, recite the Lord's Prayer, almost immediately or invariably, this line will come to their mind. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And just about everybody goes to Matthew chapter 6, and they think that is the Lord's Prayer. But actually, Matthew chapter 6 is not the Lord's Prayer. In fact, Jesus wasn't even praying when he gave that prayer. He was giving his disciples an example of how to pray. And actually, the words of that prayer are not words that Jesus would have even prayed. Because you remember the line in that prayer where Jesus said, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And Jesus, of course, never sinned, so Jesus never had to ask his heavenly Father for forgiveness. But not only was this not a model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, not only just a sample prayer, but Jesus also told us that we're not to use vain repetitions as the heathens do. And so if we get in church and we recite Matthew chapter 6 in a liturgical manner and we think that is our prayer, it would actually be wrong for us to pray that prayer. All the prayer that Matthew chapter 6 did, or those words in Matthew chapter 6, were to give the disciples a sample of how to pray. Now, sometimes, of course, we do pray repetitious prayers. We teach our children to say things like, Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Well, one night there was a mother who heard her son in his room. He was supposed to be studying, but he was praying. And he said, now I lay me down to rest. I hope to pass tomorrow's test. If I should die before I wake, that's one less test I have to take. (laughs) Sometimes we do pray repetitious prayers. But this prayer that we're studying today is a prayer that only Jesus could pray. And John chapter 17 is the real Lord's Prayer. This is his high priestly intercessory prayer where Jesus is speaking to his heavenly Father. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's Word today. We're picking up our study of this prayer with the second petition that Jesus prayed, and it begins with verse number 6. So that's where I want to start reading today. Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father, and in verse number 6 he says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them." And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. 
And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful prayer that Jesus prayed and what great truths we learn here from the Word of God, things that Jesus spoke himself to the Heavenly Father. And we just thank you, Lord, for what we learn here. Bless our people today as we preach your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to review for just a moment what we talked about in in part number one of this message. Jesus prays here a three-part prayer. There are actually three petitions that Jesus prayed. And in the first five verses of John chapter 6, Jesus prayed the first petition. And his first petition was a self-prayer for his past glory. And in that petition, Jesus prayed that he would be glorified and that he would be given the glory that he had with the heavenly Father before he came to this earth and he took on human flesh. You see, when Jesus came into the world, he had to lay aside his glory. Now, we understand that Jesus never stopped being God, but there's this brilliant light of the glory of God that Jesus was not able to show while he was on this earth. And so Jesus had to cover up that glory, had to veil that glory in his flesh. And if he hadn't done that, then it would have been impossible for anyone to approach him in this earthly life. Mary, his mother, would never have been able to look into his face. The shepherds on the hillside would not have been able to come and worship him. His disciples never would have been able to walk with him if Jesus had not veiled that glory with his flesh. And that's because the Bible tells us that God dwells in a light that man is not able to approach to. His glory is part of that light. And so man cannot approach God unless that glory is covered. And so Jesus veiled his glory with his flesh. But now he prays that he will be reunited. When his work here on earth is done, that he would be reunited with that glory that he had with the Father before the world began. So he says in verse number four, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. So in this first petition, Jesus makes a prayer about past glory. The Father will be glorified when Jesus has finished his work, and Jesus himself also will be glorified when he gives those that he is going to save eternal life. Now, does anybody remember what eternal life is? I told you to underline this in your Bible last week. I hope you did that. John 17, verse number 3, gives us the definition of eternal life. There Jesus says, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So eternal life is not what many people think. It's, It's not just living a long time. And they're happy to think that eternal life is living forever and forever. But that's not what the Bible says that eternal life is. Eternal life includes that, But eternal life is really to know God, to know God through the person of Jesus Christ. 
Now, I'd like to move on to the second petition of Christ's prayer. And this is also very important for all of us. It's important for every believer. And this is a, a, a petition. This second petition is one that receives a lot of argument from people today. But there really doesn't need to be any argument, I don't think, because Jesus is very clear about what he wants to say. So that first petition was a self-prayer for past glory. And the second petition is a selfless prayer for his present disciples. A selfless prayer for his present disciples. Now, one of the wonderful things that we draw out of John chapter 17 is this idea that those of us who are saved, those who are believers in Jesus Christ, we are God's gifts to Christ. Now, I put that on your listening sheet today. I want you to make that note. We are God's gifts to Christ. In verse number two, Jesus said that the disciples were given to him. In verse number six, twice he tells us the disciples are his gift. He says, I have manifested thy name unto the men, which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. If you read a little bit further, as we did, you find out in verse number 7, he speaks about these that are given, believers are given. In verse number 9, he says that they're given. Once again, in verse number 11, he says believers have been given to him. So there's something that's very peculiar and very special about this select group of people because the Bible says that these are ones who have been given to Jesus. Now, do you, do you see this? This is the heart and core of a doctrine that we call the doctrine of election. And that is that there are some people who have been given to Jesus Christ. That, that's not the most popular doctrine around, but Jesus teaches it very clearly right here in the Gospel of John. Paul expanded on that throughout his writings. And he says in, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, he tells us when this choosing of God or this election of God took place. In Ephesians 1 verse 4 it says, According as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And then Paul talks about it again in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse number 13. He says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And so as we go through the Word of God, there's no escaping this in the pages of Scripture that this is a doctrine that the Bible teaches. And it's not a doctrine that should be hated, but really it's one that should be dearly loved by everyone who's a believer. And the reason is because the very foundation of our security in Christ rests in this fact that we've been chosen by God. Is there any truth that you could think of that could make you any or happier than that or make you glorify God any more than this than to think that God loved you so much that God chose you personally to be his child? And then the Bible says that he made a present of you to his own dear son, and now you belong to him. What could be better than that? Folks, that doesn't make me angry. What that does is make me shout it to the housetops. I mean, just to know that God loved me personally. He sent Jesus to die for me personally. He gave me eternal life and he promised to bring me to the Father. And this is what Jesus has done. He's done everything. He's accomplished everything that God intended for him to accomplish. And so Jesus said in verse number four, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. 
What was that work? Well, he states it in verse number 12. While I was with them in the world, I have kept them in thy name. Those that thou hast given me, I have kept. And none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So here's this group of people. Here are these disciples who lived with Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They ate with him. And now Jesus says with great affection to them, these are mine. These are my gifts. They belong to me. They're gifts that came from my father. Now, that's great for those disciples that were with Jesus right then. He said, they are my gifts. But I also want you to understand that there is another group that Jesus will talk about in this prayer. We come to that group next week. And this group is you and this group is me if we believe in Jesus Christ. He says in verse number 20, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. And so those of you who are here today that you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've trusted him because of the testimony of the apostles. The apostles were faithful to preach the word, and the words uh, spread throughout all of the world. And now today it comes down to us, and the word has been preserved so that we can believe it. And so that makes us a part of this wonderful prayer of Jesus. So that means that everything that Jesus said about those present disciples, those that were with him right then, he's also saying to us today. Now, as we think further about this prayer, I want you to notice some things that Jesus prayed for in this prayer about those present disciples. And don't forget about this as we talk about it. He's also speaking to you. He's speaking to me if we are believers. Now, notice, first of all, that he prayed that they would be anchored as his possession. He says in verse number six, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Well, we notice from that that once every believer belonged to the Father. We were possessed by the Father, and we were objects of his divine love. Now, we know, of course, that God owns everything that's in the universe. God owns every atom. He owns every molecule, every star, every planet that he's created, He owns it all. He's the almighty God. And so by virtue of creation, God owns everything. But we see here that there's something very special that God has done. He's chosen out of all of his universe, of everything that he made, God has specifically chosen out of all of that a particular peculiar gift that he wants to give to his son. We read about it right here. These are the ones that were given to him the, the people that who would believe in him, the people that he chose for his salvation, those were given to him as a gift. Now, verse number six, it says, he says, thine they were. And if you look at that statement, it ought to show you clearly that the anchor of our soul's, soul's uh, security and the anchor of our soul's salvation is not in some decision that we've made. And it's not in our ability to keep on believing in God Our security is anchored in this. It's in the eternal purpose of God. And the Bible says that this purpose goes all the way back before the world created. So it was an eternal purpose to save these souls. And although it does come about in time, yet the surety that it would happen was never in question. It was going to happen. So Jesus then even goes beyond the fact that we're God's possession. He adds to this that what was God's has now been turned over to him. And it was his job to accomplish for them exactly what God intended for him to accomplish. 
And so, if even one single one of these fails to receive their salvation, then Jesus and the Father have failed in their eternal purpose. You see, it was never Jesus' hope that when he came into the world that that somehow he would do something so extraordinary and so spectacular that somehow there would be some saved who were not part of this divine choice. Now, we all know that Jesus was an extraordinary preacher. None of us would doubt that at all. But do you notice as you read the scriptures how many people actually came to know Jesus? As he's speaking right here, there's just the 11 disciples. There are a few more that have been scattered about throughout the scriptures, if you read them, who actually did believe in Christ. But out of all of the thousands of people that Jesus preached to, and after all the miracles that Jesus performed, there were only just a very few people who actually believed in him. Have you ever wondered why that's so? Did Jesus have the ability to make more disciples if he wanted to do that? Couldn't Jesus have called out more than just Peter, James, and John and the other disciples? Couldn't he, if he wanted to, have saved everyone that was in the world at any one time? Do you notice in the Bible that he never said about the Pharisees that the Pharisees are given to me? He said that about his disciples, and he says that about you and I who are believers. He says that we're given, but he never told the Pharisees that they were given. When he was preaching to those thousands that were on the hillside, and he fed them with five loaves and two fishes, not once did Jesus say, well, look at all these people. All of these are the ones who have been given to me by the Father. Jesus never said that. In John chapter 10, uh, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, and he told them. He said, but ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. So he says here, you're not my sheep. You're not of the number of my sheep, and so therefore you don't believe in me. And that was the very same thing as saying, you were not given to me by my Father. Now that's very difficult for people. It's very difficult for people to get their minds around that and to grasp this, what Jesus is actually saying. And it was so difficult that the Pharisees in Jesus' time, whenever he began to speak like this, they got it very angry about it. They tried to kill him. Now, you read throughout the Gospel of John when Jesus makes these kinds of statements, those are the very things that angered the Pharisees so much. But could we say that Jesus couldn't have saved everybody in the world if he wanted to do that? Couldn't we say that Jesus could save every single person if that's what he came to do? And yet, there are many people who don't believe that Jesus was able to do what he actually said that he could do. And so they think that, that Jesus just came and indiscriminately decided to save everybody that was in the world. Now, this is why John 17 is so important. Because Jesus says that it's the Father's will to save all those who had been given to him by the Father. Now, so specific is that statement. So specific is this work that he has for his own and for this particular gift that I want you to notice what he says in verse number 9. He said, I pray for them, the ones that have been given to him by the Father. He says, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Now, do you see how specific it is? If you are a believer, Christ prays for you. He prays for you and for no one else, for those who have been given to him. Now, I want you to notice in the next petition that Jesus prayed for these disciples to keep his word. And this is a very important part of this prayer because it's the instrumentality of the word that God uses to bring us to him. 
Now, in verse number 8, Jesus says, For I have given unto them the words which thou givest me. You see, there's only one thing that could ever change the heart of a lost sinner, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the thing that God uses to change people's hearts. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to everyone that believeth. And so no matter who you are, the only way that you'll ever come to Christ is through the preaching of the gospel. So God takes the word, he takes the gospel, and he penetrates the stubborn heart. He takes that proud, stubborn person, and he turns him around and makes him willing to come to Christ for salvation. This is not a matter of just pure persuasion. It's not just argument. There's nobody who's ever been argued or debated into the kingdom of God. Now, God certainly used argument. He uses debate. He does use those things. But in the end, it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that will ever save a person. That's the only thing that can change your heart. It's true. God could have used some other way to save us. He could have said, I'm going to give you a universal law. And with this universal law, all people will be saved. But God didn't do that. He chose the word. And so the word preached And the word made effectual by the penetrating power of the Holy Spirit, that's the only way way that a person can be saved. And this is why that Jesus prayed for the disciples to keep his word. His word was so important. They had to bear that word. They had to preach that word. Because by it only, that's the only way people would ever believe in him. Now, the third thing that he prays for in this prayer, in this petition, he prays to be protected, for these disciples to be protected by his name. Jesus prayed that the disciples would be protected by the mighty power of his name. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse number 10, the Bible says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. Do you see the word Lord in that verse? We have it on the screen. You see, the word Lord is is printed there in all caps. And and I've told you about this many times before. But whenever you see the word Lord like that written in the scriptures, that's actually the word Jehovah. And so that's saying that the name of Jehovah is a strong tower. and, And those that are righteous go to that strong tower. And that's where we find our protection. Now, when God was speaking to Moses at the burning bush... And God told Moses to deliver his people. Moses asked God, he said, well, who shall I say sent me? And God said to Moses, you tell them that I am has sent me. Later on, God said to Moses, I am the Lord. In other words, Moses, I am the eternally existent God. I am Jehovah God. Well, when we come to the New Testament, right here in the Gospel of John... Jesus uses those very same words. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And so Jesus identified himself with the very same words that God spoke in the Old Testament to Moses. And we remember as we've gone through the Gospel of John that Jesus used other I am statements. There are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Things like Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He said, I am the door. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You remember in in chapter 15, he said, I am the vine. And every time that Jesus used those words, I am, he was identifying himself with Jehovah God in the Old Testament. Now, Moses' protection came from Jehovah God. 
But you know, Moses also made some I am statements. When God told him to go tell the tell Pharaoh to let his people go, Moses said, I am not eloquent. He said, I am slow of speech. And so that means that Moses couldn't go in his own name. He had no power to go in his own name, but he had to go in the name of God. Now we notice in verse number 11 of our text in John 17, Jesus says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. And so when Jesus prayed for these disciples to be kept in the Father's name, he said, keep him, them in that name, the great I am. And when he identified himself also as the great I am, then Jesus is saying, keep them in my name. I am also Jehovah God. And so we're protected by this great name of God. Now, you remember in John chapter 10, Jesus spoke to us about the the security of a believer in Christ. And in John chapter 10, verse 28, it says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my Father's hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now, what we see in that verse is double protection. Jesus says that they're in my hand, And you remember the illustration when we talked about this particular scripture? Jesus says, they're in my hand. But then the heavenly father has come and he's clasped his hand over the top of Jesus' hand. Now, one hand, that would be enough to hold us. The hand of Jesus, that's powerful enough. But lest we should despair, he also says that the heavenly father has his hand of protection on you as well. And so we see from the scriptures that there is no possibility that any child of God should ever fall. He could never lose his salvation. And that's because he's kept in the hand of Jesus and also kept in the hand of the Father. But now we go on because Jesus is still praying for these disciples. There are other things that he says. The fourth thing that he prays about here is to be filled with his joy. That the disciples would have the joy. Now verse 13 says this. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I don't know how you could have more joy than this, than to know that Christ has done these things for you personally. I mean, doesn't it do something to you just to think that out of all of humanity, out of all the people in the world, that God has done something specifically for you? You see, those who don't believe in in the sovereign choice of God, they believe that what God did was to look down upon humanity. He saw the mass of men that were down here, but he never intended to save anyone particularly. That was never never in his idea. And so they believe that what God has done, he thrust Jesus out upon the cross. He threw the gospel out there indiscriminately, just hoping that someone would believe the gospel of Christ. And he didn't make sure that anybody actually did. He never, he never made that a sure thing. He just put it out there. And so he made an atonement for some that really doesn't atone. He made redemption that really doesn't redeem. He made reconciliation that really doesn't reconcile unless there's something added to it. And the thing that has to be added to it, added to it they say, is this belief or this faith that we have or the decision that we make, it has to be added 
to what Christ did, or the atonement is no good, or the redemption is no good, and the reconciliation is no good. But that's not the picture that we get in John 17. It's not the prayer that Jesus prays. He's very specific about this. And when you get down and get hold of this and get it in your heart, that Jesus looks squarely down to you. And he saw you and he had his eyes fastened upon you. And he determined that he would save you and that he would give you eternal life. When it's so specific as that, when you see that he redeemed you, he atoned to God for you, he reconciled you to God. What could be better? How could you not have joy in that? It's just like the songwriter said, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Nobody can say that under these other ideas that people have because it's just like God threw it out there, which means that there's a possibility that no one would actually believe it. That Jesus could come into this world and he would give his life to die for people and it would all be in vain because nobody would actually believe it. How can I have joy? Knowing that it's all done for me personally because Jesus prayed for me. He prayed that I would be saved. He prayed that I would be safe. And I have joy in this choice of the sovereign God knowing that he watched me, he knew me before I was ever born and he's still watching over me today. So that's a reason to have joy. But now let's go on. There's still more here. Jesus prays for his disciples to be sanctified by his word. To be sanctified by his word. Now, sanctify, you know, that's that's one of those $5 theological words that not many people understand. Jesus used the word sanctify in the 17th verse. He says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Well, what does that mean? What's the word sanctify mean? I want to give you a very simple, easy definition. Sanctify means to use for its intended purpose. To use something for its intended purpose. Now, when you come into the church service, perhaps some of you, as you walked through those doors outside, you looked over to your left, and you saw that beautiful little car sitting in that parking space. That, that parking space has my name on it. And that is intended for me to park there. So every day when I come into church, I pull into that parking space because it has my name on it. That is every day, unless some half-baked person who can't read decides to pull in my parking place instead. Now, Dave Sharon made that sign for me. And we talked about this and we thought, well, what we might ought to do is put a sign underneath that. And it says, if you park here, you preach. And I thought about that, but then I realized that there are probably some women in the church who have some things that they'd really like to say, so they might park there just so they could preach. But the reason I'm telling you this is that 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 parking space is intended for me to park there. And so that space is sanctified. I bet you didn't know that, did you? I have a, sanct- I have a sanctified parking space. But when I park there, that space is being used for its intended purpose. And whenever you use something for its intended purpose, it's said to be sanctified. Now, those of you that have attended Berean for quite some time, you will know the answer to this next question. What is the purpose of every believer? Somebody? To glorify God. Exactly right. The intended purpose for every believer is to glorify God. Now, Jesus prayed for these disciples to be sanctified. That means I want them to be used for their intended purpose. 
Now let me read a verse to you. We read it just a moment ago. We were talking about the chosen ones of God. I read it a moment ago, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, listen, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And so the Bible teaches us that it's God's desire for us to be holy as God is holy. And our holiness promotes the glory of God. And so we are chosen to be holy in Christ. And so the goal of those who have been chosen to salvation is to be holy as God is holy. And as we glorify God, we are being used for our intended purpose. Now, Jesus tells us how that's accomplished. He says in the 17th verse, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now, the only way that you can be used for your intended purpose is to come through the truth. Well, what is the truth? Well, that's God's word. Truth is God's word. And when Jesus uses the word truth here, he is particularly thinking about the gospel, learning the truth through the gospel. And as I said, people are brought to Christ in only one way, and that's through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that would tell us that whatever it is that's preached, if people are going to be saved by it, whatever it is that's preached must be the right gospel. And if it's not the right gospel, then people will never believe and they'll never be used for their intended purpose. What is the right gospel? Well, you may remember that Paul gave us a definition in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I won't quote all of that for you, but he did tell us this, that the gospel is the fact that Christ died and that Christ went into the tomb and that Christ arose from the dead. Now, in fact, that is what Jesus was about to do. This prayer in John 17 is only a few hours before Jesus went to the cross. And what he would do, he would go to the cross and there he would die. He would be put into the tomb. And three days later, Jesus would come out of that tomb. Now, do you see what's happening to the disciples? They are observing this. They're watching this. So that the word, this gospel of Christ, is not only just something that they hear, but it's something that they see and it gets right down into their heart. And Jesus prays that they would be sanctified by that truth. And this is the way it is. You will be sanctified in the truth of Jesus Christ when the word gets down into your heart and it abides there and it begins to change you. You become holy as God is holy. And as you are, you are said to be sanctified. That's when Christ's character is reproduced in you. But that doesn't happen unless you stay in the word. Now, that leads me to the final part of this prayer as Jesus prays for these disciples because he's praying that their, his word would be in them and the word that's in them is the word that must be shared. And so he prayed for them next to be a witness to the world. And you see, that's part of our intended purpose. We're sanctified when we become witnesses to this world. Now, verse 18 says, "'As thou hast sent me into the world,' Even so have I also sent them into the world. So Jesus, why, would, why did he come here? He was sent here to give us the word of God. And what do we learn in the first chapter of John? That Jesus is the word. Jesus is the living word. And so he came to give this word to us. Now he says, since the word is also in my disciples because I've given it to them, then I want them to tell everyone else about it. Now just recently... I read an article from someone who, who doesn't quite agree with this interpretation of John 17. I think it's pretty clear. 
And I think I've tried to make it clear to you today. But this person said, if God, listen to the words now. He wrote, if God really has chosen some to salvation and not all, then why does Jesus say, preach the gospel to all nations? First of all, I would tell you, there's no doubt that God has made a sovereign choice. That's very clear from the scriptures, and we just read it today. There's very clear distinction here. The Bible gives us between those who have been given to Christ and those who have not been. So it's not a matter if God has chosen, because God most certainly has chosen. There's no doubt about that. You can't get around it in the scripture. And so the question is just simply this. Why does Jesus tell us to preach the gospel to everybody in the world? Well, very simply, because that's the means that he has ordained for the salvation of sinners. No one will ever get saved unless they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this gospel is the tool that people use, born-again believers use, to reach other people. And that tool, wielded in the power of the Holy Spirit, draws that person to Christ. Now, we don't have any idea who's going to believe. We give the gospel to everyone. We have absolutely no idea who will believe until the Holy Spirit touches that person's heart and they express their faith in Christ. So God has ordained the means by which we're saved. But be sure of this, folks. He has also ordained the way by which you will be saved. Both of those things have been ordained by God. So if you have been called by God, you've been chosen by God and you're saved, you are also ordained or chosen by God to give the gospel to other people. So Jesus says, even so, I've also sent them into the world. Now, what is then the strongest incentive to give the gospel to another person? What is the strongest incentive? Would it be that there is somebody out there somewhere who may or may not believe, is it that there is a potential believer out there somewhere who may or may not believe, or would it be a stronger incentive to preach the gospel of Christ when the word of God says there are people out there who will believe because God has intended it to be so? It's not happenstance. It's not haphazard. God has intended that there are people who believe. And so the strongest incentive to preach the gospel of Christ is to give it to everybody and God will save all that he intends to save. I don't have any control over that. Nobody has any control over it. It's in God's hands. So God does it all. Now, several times I've mentioned this statement that was made by Donald Gray Barnhouse. And it's a statement that was made early in the 20th century. He was a great Bible teacher from early in the 20th century. And it answers the question of why we give the gospel to every single person. And he says, imagine that the cross has a door in it. All that you're asked to do is to go through. On the one side facing you, there's written an invitation. Whosoever will may come. And you stand there with your sin upon you. And you wonder if you should enter in or not. Finally, as you do, the burden of your sin drops away. You're safe and free. Joyfully then, you turn around and you see written on the backside of the cross through which you have just entered, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And so that's why we preach the gospel to every single person. Whosoever will may come. And when you get through that cross, when you go through that door, you see on the other side, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. You see, God knows who all of us are. 
Now, friend, there's one thing that I can tell you today that I know absolutely for sure. Any person who is in this room today, and hear me very clearly, I don't want you to make any mistake about anything that I've said today. Any person who is in this room today, or any person in the world who will believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died to save them from their sins, and they believe that when they die, Jesus will take them to heaven, that person can be saved. I'm not going to make any mistake about that. That is exactly what the Word of God says. If you will believe, you will be saved. And that's the only way that you'll ever be saved, is if you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you trusted Jesus? That's the question. Will you trust him today? That's what we need to know. Folks, this is a wonderful prayer that Jesus prayed here. He prayed a selfless prayer for his present disciples. And in that prayer, he's also praying for you and me. And he's saying in that prayer, I have given my life for you. I have given it all for you. I've done everything that's necessary to be done. He does it all. It's all up to him. And Jesus prayed that selfless prayer. I'm willing to do the Father's will. I will go to the cross. I will die. I will pay for sins. And all who believe in me can be saved. And then he tells us that everyone who believes in him is protected by the mighty hand of God. Now, I'd like to know. And you need to ask yourself the question today. Will I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior? Will I have the joy of knowing that Christ died for me personally? When you were on the cross, when he was on the cross, rather, you were on his mind. And that is a true statement. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, do you believe him? Have you trusted him? That's the question you need to answer today. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the word that we receive from John chapter 17. You've been so clear to us. And the thing for us to do now is to read your word, study your word, and believe it exactly as you have said. Maybe we don't understand it all, but this is the way you put it. This is the way you said it. And we can't do anything but praise your almighty name that you were willing to come into this world and die for lost sinners personally. You know who they all are. And Lord, we just thank you for that. Every person who believes can go to heaven when they die. I just ask you, Lord, to speak to some soul today. May the Holy Spirit take the word that's been preached. May make it effectual in the heart of some person today that they will believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. For we ask these things in your precious Son's name. Amen.